0: Up on today's show, it was the feature piece in the federal budget, a national $10 a day child care plan. Also, the legislature gets back to work today after their three-week pause due to surging COVID-19 cases and the constitutional quagmire. Quebec says they plan to amend the Constitution. We'll try and get some clarity around just where the law stands. In the most recent federal budget, the Liberal government introduced plans to implement a national $10 a day child care program. It's a $30 billion program over the next five years. Uh, there's a number of details to sort through, not the least of which is how it's going to work with the provinces who are required to split the costs. Uh, and Alberta has said, yeah, the system might not work for us. So there's going to be some discussion around that. But in addition to that, the announcement noted the plan will quote, support primarily not for profit sector child care providers. And that clause is really, really big, especially here in Alberta. The majority of child care offered in this province is not offered by not for profit providers, it's all done privately. So what happens to these places? And what does it mean in terms of putting together a national child care program? Peter Sean Taylor is the senior features editor at C2C Journal and he recently took a deep dive into this issue, and he joins us this morning to talk about it. Peter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Shay.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of talk around this program when it was announced, but I don't know if uh, this really made a lot of headlines. kind of flew under the radar when the announcement was made, but really that factor of primarily focusing on not-for-profit child care, that's a really, really big deal.
1: It is, I, and people got dazzled, I guess, by the $30 billion. It was the, the single biggest thing in the uh, federal budget, yeah. so that what get everybody talking. But... uh When when you start looking through the details, uh, you know the question does arise. What does it mean when they say primarily not for profit? Uh, Is this uh, sort of typical federal liberal virtue signaling, um, where they're sort of playing to their particular crowd, or is this uh, actual intention? On this is how they. want to roll this out. And if, if this is uh, something they feel very strongly about, uh, there's going to be a lot of problems as, as they try to sign provincial deals across the country.
0: Yeah. And Peter, like you say, you know, why are they doing it? I mean, there is a school mm-hmm. of thought out there from certain academics and people who think that the only way mm-hmm. to do childcare is not for profit, right? I mean, there is a group out there that thinks private child care is a disaster.
1: That is certainly true. Uh, It's the same sort of folks that think uh, private sector nursing homes are a disaster and and that almost everything should be provided by the the public sector um, uh, i think it's a mistaken belief but it's certainly a belief you hear a lot of and uh, i mean that's uh, i i think the liberals are are playing to that crowd mm-hmm. um, with this but when you if you start to really break down the child care sector how it works um, across the province it's very complex it's quite diverse um, and it's simply not going to fly uh you can't you can't Implement what the Liberals claim they want to implement and shut out the for-profit sector, regardless of your ideology. Uh, eventually, reality comes to bear.
0: Yeah, and and you know, you make a good point. Like, you take a look at the way that the program is run in different jurisdictions in Canada right now. I know in Alberta, mm-hmm. in your piece, I think you said over 60% yeah, of the childcare right spaces are, are privately run. Mm-hmm. And uh, it goes up to seventy percent
1: in Newfoundland and Labrador. So it's a uh, uh, a big component in in a majority of provinces. Actually, majority of provinces have more than fifty percent for profit uh, childcare. So it's not this isn't something that's uh, insignificant that you can sort of uh, brush aside. Um, it's true in Ontario and Quebec. Um, that uh, the for-profit sector is is quite it, well we we can get into that in Ontario in particular um for-profit sector is quite a bit smaller than it is in, in some other provinces and that tends to color perhaps a bureaucrats view of what what the world looks like uh, but uh, the for-profit sector is vital and it's very important it's not just a provider of of supply of spaces, but uh, almost all the innovation that you talk about um, is is coming from entrepreneurs. They're not uh, evil or somehow stealing from children. Uh, These are are hardworking people who are making their sector better, uh, improving it. Um, and there's lots of examples. We can get into that if you
0: want. But well, yeah, yeah. You, know, th- we sh- you know, Peter, I think we should, because we talk about, you know, mm-hmm. part of this program is meant to increase spaces. The mm-hmm. province of Alberta has said, you know what, we want to look into overnight daycare for people who yes. work shifts, things like that. That kind of stuff, if it's happened anywhere in the country, has done all of that work, basically, through private agencies, Right. Uh, through entrepreneurs,
1: quite right. Uh, in the story, I talked to the Alberta Minister of Children's Services, Rebecca Schultz, and she, she said, you know, they looked for, uh, you know, they were hearing from parents what a, what a parents want. Well, shift working parents wanted um, overnight care uh, because that's a, uh, you know, a crucial component sure. of them being able to work as a nursing shift or an industry or whatever. Uh, so they put out a call. Um, are any you know what, what child cares in the province are prepared to participate in a pilot program to see how this how this works and when they it would got up and running in in february and it, I found it quite significant that all thirteen uh child care operations that that agreed to be part of this pilot project were for-profit operators. None, no non-profit stepped up and said, "Yes, I want to be part of this." And I think the child care industry tends to be quite rigid, uh, quite resistant to change. Uh, they like the nine to five, Monday to Friday. I think any parent that's ever gone to it. A child care um, operation said, You know, I just like maybe three days a week because my, Mm -hmm. my, you know, the grandparents will take the kids on Thursdays and Fridays or something. And you get a lot of resistance. They don't like that. They like everything to be the same, it's cookie cutter kind of, you know, this is what you sign up for. And I think entrepreneurs, can recognize those markets um, opportunities um, and, and fill those niches. And that's, that's crucial, crucial for parents. Um, And we do ourselves a great disservice if we say there's something, you know, illegitimate about the, the for-profit childcare sector.
0: And, you know, I mean, not to pile on the liberals here, but um, if you take a look at the people who run a lot of these private daycares, they're women, right? And and a big (laughs) part of this discussion was the feminist agenda and getting women back to work when in, turn, this may actually end up hurting female entrepreneurs.
1: Well, I mean, that irony is included in the budget itself. Um, there's this $30 billion program that's supposed to be uh, primarily not-for-profit, and then they, you flip a few pages over and there's a $147 million women entrepreneurship strategy. And it's not lost on the for-profit sector that um, most of the owners of for-profit child cares are are women. And if you create some sort of federal structure in which the for-profit sector is discriminated against, you're going to be forcing out female entrepreneurs. Um, And and uh, you know I've talked to some people who said you know women that own these places see the writing on the wall. You know if the budget says this is primarily not for profit, then where does that leave me? Where is my share of this? $30 $30 billion that they're going to be uh, flinging across the country. And then so, some of these women entrepreneurs are getting out of the business because they don't think, they'll think they'll be crushed by the, the not-for-profit sector getting all the, the subsidies
0: and grants and whatnot. Well, if it goes that way, Peter, there's, there's no question they will. You, if you're running privately and you're not getting subsidized care, you can't offer $10 a day childcare. It's just not possible.
1: Oh, quite, quite right. And you've seen that in uh, in Ontario, they they do. Some cities will discriminate. They won't provide subsidies to for profit operators, and those operators eventually end up shutting down. I mean, yeah, I mean, no one is going to be able to compete with the ten dollar a day daycare. uh, once that's going. So, so yeah, if you want to cut out all the for profit uh, childcare, sure. Say that only, only non for profit will be able to offer the $10 deal, and, and, and you'll kill that entire sector, sir. Sure.
0: Now, once again, uh, just before I let you go here, Quebec is sort of showing the way that this can be done, right? They have both models working and working rather effectively.
1: Yes, uh, and Quebec is very instructive here. Um and the, the budget explicitly calls Quebec the pioneer for for its its own uh plans. Um and yes, you know, when Quebec started this, remember it was a $5 a day daycare program in 1997. They said this is going to be just exclusively not for profit the way all the academics claim that's um you know, that's it's pure uh et cetera, et cetera, all those reasons. Um, they actually uh, announced a, a ban on for profit no new for profit daycares were allowed to open um for the first five years as they rolled this thing out. And what they found was that the not for profit sector simply could not keep right, up yeah. with the demand. Um, and the waiting lists grew enormous and who benefits when there's a long waiting list? It's wealthy, connected families. And so what you found was the the lower income Families that would really benefit, perhaps, from the extra early education that you get from childcare—they were getting shut out, and it was, you know, millionaire kids, uh, millionaires' kids getting cheap daycare. Like, uh, who makes? Where does that make sense? Um, and, and Quebec came to realize various governments, uh, as they've been through them, uh, said that we can't do this without the private sector. And so now, if you look at their um, uh, at the system. Um, excluding the, the schools, so there's some after school programs. If you take those out, if you just look at sort of conventional right. childcare, uh, there's about 300,000 spaces in the province, and only 98,000 of those are provided by not for profit operators. The rest is um, centers that are getting subsidies, centers whose parents are eligible for tax credits that are about the same as the subsidies, and um, people that are looking after children in their homes, home daycare. Sure, yeah. so, Two thirds of the system is basically <laughs> for profit in Quebec, and that's the system, That's the model right. for Ottawa, and yet Ottawa claims it's going to be primarily not for profit. The, the two things just don't they, go they, together. They don't you you together. can't do it.
0: Okay, yeah. Peter, I appreciate your time. I got to let you go. I got to get to a break, sure. but great discussion. Thank you very much, sir. It was a pleasure to talk. That is Peter Sean Taylor. If you want to read the article that he wrote, you can find it at C, like the letter C, the number two, the letter C Journal, C two C Journal. Legislature will resume sitting today. First time in a few weeks. Of course, it was delayed. It was supposed to start, uh, I think, three weeks ago. And uh, the UCP government announced that they would not be sending the MLAs back into the legislature because of COVID concerns. But they'll be back now. And uh, it should be a very, very interesting session. So let's get a preview from Tom Vernon, who is the provincial affairs reporter for Global News. Uh, Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Good, Shay. How are you doing? Really, really good. Yeah, it should be an interesting session. Uh, there's so many fires burning for the Jason Kenney government right now. Uh, I imagine the NDP just champing at the bit to get back in there. They were all over social media this weekend saying, what would you ask the premier? What would you ask the premier? So where do you think they start their line of attack today?
2: I think question number one is on paid sick leave. That's been their, their number one issue over the past few weeks, but they're also planning on bringing up uh, the curriculum, uh, obviously, that has received a lot of criticism. ATA over the weekend voted a, a vote of non-confidence in the education minister, so they're going to go back to that. And then small business supports. I've been seeing some conversation from small business owners uh, from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business that this round of uh, grants has been slow to go to small businesses. So I think we're going to hear uh, from the NDP on that. But paid sick leave will probably be number one, number two, and number three questions from the NDP today. They've written a bill for yep. the government to uh, to to take on if they so choose for ten days of paid sick leave for Albertans who need it. Um we know the U C government's not going to do that. Premier Kennedy called it a job killing policy last week, so Uh, But that's going to be, it's probably going to be the big one this week for the NDP.
0: You mentioned the curriculum, and we've already got some texts this morning from listeners saying, hey, uh, I heard about the ATA voting non-confidence in the education minister, and uh, is that significant? Does it matter? Um, My take, I I think, Tom, it's significant. I mean, it's definitely a a voice against the education minister, but in terms of ramifications and legal consequences, it really doesn't mean anything,
2: right? I think what we'll see is the premier dig his heels in on this. Uh, Remember, the... uh doctors gave a vote of non-confidence to the uh, health minister, uh, Tyler Chandra last fall. And mm-hmm. the premier came out and said, my, my minister is not going anywhere. You know, I, I have full confidence in him. Uh, what was interesting to see is, how does this translate down the line? So we saw in the fall, doctors give a vote of non-confidence, and then a, a new president of the AMA comes in, he strikes a deal with the minister, and doctors say, no, we right. don't trust this minister, and they voted against it. So I mean, teachers' contracts, negotiations coming up, uh, you know, how how does this impact... Uh, The relationship down the line. So, yeah, the the vote itself, it's significant in that, what was it, 99% of teachers said, no, we do not have any confidence in this minister. Uh, It won't have any ramifications for her, but it'd be interesting to see how this relationship
0: continues on uh, through the next couple of years. And Tom, of course, this will be the first time in the legislature where the expelled UCP caucus members, Mm -hmm. uh, Todd Lohan and Drew Barnes, will be in attendance. Uh, Do you expect anything? I mean, they'll get their time if they want it, right? How does that work?
2: Yeah, so as independent MLAs, they'll get uh, they'll get their own questions in the um, in, in the order. So I'm not exactly sure. I wonder if that's in the. I haven't taken a complete look through the, the the order paper, but they'll get questions just like any other uh, private member of the legislature. So, but this time they won't be written by anyone inside cabinet or inside government to uh, to to lob up to a minister to answer. So, just think of the changes since oh. the last time they were in the House, right? I mean. There were no well, there were restrictions in place, but the premier didn't uh, increase restrictions until after uh, shutting down session. Uh, there were yeah, the two other MLAs inside their caucus that have now been booted out. So it, it's going to be an interesting dynamic. It sounds like they've, they've tried to put together some form of virtual. I mean, you, you don't have to be in the house. That I, I don't know the full details on yeah. that. I do know they were kind of practicing it. So it's going to be a completely different look than it was when they were last in on April 22nd.
0: And, you know, like you mentioned, restrictions and the Premier really sort of building uh, the stage for some good news Mm -hmm. this week, talking about a great Alberta summer. Uh, Do we know any ideas in terms of when an announcement? That's typically a Thursday announcement. Is it not when they talk about restrictions? Oh, we'll see. Uh, the, the priorities cabinet committee is meeting
2: today. So okay. they, they started meeting about half an hour ago. I, I tend to think that it might be, I, I, they haven't answered my question. I've asked, is he speaking today? I haven't heard anything, but my gut tells me they're going to want to do it today. They're going to want to distract from the NDP, hammering them for paid sick leave and hammering them for not being around for three weeks and that. They're going to want to control the narrative during the week. And how do you do that? Well, you step the premier up to talk about the the relaunch plan, mm-hmm. right? So, My gut tells me today, I haven't been told that if it is actually happening or not, but they are meeting today. Um, I don't know if they, maybe maybe later in the week, but yeah, but I mean, I I feel like we're going to hear from them today so they can kind of set the tone for the restart of session, but this is politics. They want to control the narrative. Sure. I feel like that'll be today.
0: And, Tom, it's like you say, it is so important right now. I mean, when you take a look, getting all, all the MLAs back and the cameras around and everything, and everybody having mm-hmm. an opportunity to speak, the Premier has so many fires burning right now. This mm-hmm. is a, a pivotal week for him, and you're right. It'll be important for him to be front and center and trying to control it as best he can right from the get-go. I mean, think of the last three weeks. Um, They haven't
2: been in session, so there's not been legislation for them to introduce to to try and control the the conversation of the week. There's been caucus infighting. There was the the drama around Line 5 and all that news coming down, right? So when they get back in session, everybody's here. You're the government. You want to look like you're in control and you've got things going. Yeah, it's today. That's why I feel like it's today. They're going to want to start talking about this. So what are we talking about tomorrow? Premier Roll rollout plan. What are we talking about Thursday? Oh, maybe what does this look like? So, yeah, that, uh, he's got a lot of fires burning, and he doesn't want to talk about a lot of those fires, and <laughs> maybe we'll talk about something else.
0: Exactly. Throw something else out there, and hopefully it sticks. Uh, good stuff. Thanks very much, Tom. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Ray. That's Tom Vernon, who is the Global Affairs uh, Provincial Correspondent, covers provincial politics uh, in the province of Alberta. What's going on with Quebec and the Constitution? It's a very, very interesting story. Now, constitutional crisis is a term that gets thrown around a lot these days. Not so much here in Canada, but certainly in the United States. But we may well be hurtling towards one in our own country very soon. The Quebec government, basically what it is, they have plans to unilaterally change the Canadian Constitution. Changes that would enshrine Quebec as a nation within Canada and designate its official language as French. A lot of questions about whether that's something they can even do. So let's get some answers. Eric Adams is the Vice Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Alberta, and he joins us now. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for your time today.
3: My pleasure. I wish this was about the Oilers' uh, playoff prospects, but uh, I'm happy to talk constitutional law also.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's probably less complicated than trying to sort out what's going on with the Edmonton Oilers, to be honest with you. Um, The question here is, I guess, the confusion around the legality. Of Quebec's plan. The prime minister came out last week and said, from what he's heard from his legal advisors, he thinks it's okay. He said an internal justice analysis sees no issue with the plan. But then a lot of experts came out and said, no, that's not true. You can't just unilaterally
3: change the constitution. So where does the truth lie here, Eric? Oh, I wish it was a completely uh, clear picture. Uh, Unfortunately, like some things in life, constitutions can be complex documents with complex rules and complex histories. And there's a bit of that story going on involved here where, where everyone's looking at a different Part of this constitution and saying, "Well, I think I have the power to do this. If you read this clause this way, and so different people are looking at the same document and finding different things within it to justify their position. And so, there's, there's, I think there's probably some reasonable disagreement going on about what can, what Quebec can or cannot do. And there's probably also a fair bit of constitutional politics, good old-fashioned politics mm-hmm. going on, where uh, politicians are particularly mindful of the political calculations at work. And finally, there's there's just a bit of new territory here, where this isn't something where we've had a province say they have this ability before, and so it's a little bit of uh, uncharted waters. And when you add all those three things together, um, it's, it's maybe a little bit difficult to be completely definitive. How about that for a mushy answer? But <laughs> I'll tell, you, I'll tell you this. My own sense is that, um, is, that, is that Quebec likely does not have the power that they're, they're claiming that they possess.
0: Okay, now let's talk about the power to change the Constitution. We know that's something that's been bandied about in Alberta. Typically, you need to get all the provinces on, well, not all of them, but a majority of them, to, to agree with whatever it is you're trying to do, right? No province can do this unilaterally in the larger scope of things. It requires the entire con- uh, federation, correct?
3: The uh, amending formula, and no one likes to hear those two words together, uh, the amending formula in our Constitution, which showed up in 1982, the, before that we actually just assumed that that Britain would amend the Constitution on our behalf. But in 1982, Canada takes control of its own constitutional document. And when you take control of something, you better have a way of, of figuring out how to amend it. Mm-hmm. Um, but That's a complicated story, and it turns out there's actually five different kinds of amending formulas within the Constitution, depending on the type of amendment you're talking about. So what you've just mentioned is you need seven provinces with 50% of the population. That's the general amending formula. That's going to be in place for lots of different kinds of amendments. But there's also a provision that says that provinces can unilaterally amend their own provincial constitutions, so Quebec says, well, that's all we're doing, we're just amending our own provincial constitution. There's another provision that says that a province and the federal government can do a bilateral amendment if they both agree to amend part of the constitution that just deals with that particular province. And so Quebec says, "Hey, we're under our uh, unilateral provincial constitution amending formula." Other people say, "No, no, no, you're not. You're under the general amending formula." Uh, Premier Jason Kenney takes a look at that, and interestingly, this last week he said, "Well, I like Quebec's yeah. position, um, and so uh, maybe it's uh, maybe provinces are going to be able to to pass." you know, different uh, different parts of the Constitution and throw it into the constitutional document just because a province uh, says, well, that's part of our provincial constitution. So that's where some, I think, of this confusion comes from, the fact that you've got multiple amending formulas for different scenarios.
0: So, yeah, let's, let's just get into the specifics of what Quebec wants to do and why they say it is strictly a provincial issue and they don't need the consent of the rest of uh, Canada to get on board. They're talking about, first of all, saying... Quebec is a nation within Canada. We're kind of at that point already, aren't we? With Quebec, isn't that sort of where we stand—the distinct society and all the rest of that stuff?
3: Well, there was a, a a motion that the House of Commons passed when Stephen Harper was was Prime Minister to deal with with some of the. Uh, strong views out of Quebec that uh, that you know basically said, you know, Quebecers form a nation, and right. and, them, and the House of Commons agreed. Uh, that said, yes, Quebec form a nation within United Canada. Now, Quebec has taken that language and said, well, let's put that in the Constitution. Um, they've dropped the United Canada part, but the the, the the part that they're proposing to add to the Constitution says Quebecers form a nation. Maybe that's a good idea to have in the Constitution. Maybe it's a bad idea. But the question is, can Quebec unilateral single-handedly say, well, we've passed a, a law, and now it's got to be in the Canadian constitution. They say yes, because they say that's just part of the provincial constitution. I say no, because when you put that language within the Constitution Act of Canada, you're not amending your provincial constitution. You're amending the constitution of Canada, and that's what then engages the other parties in that constitutional document i think you're you're you know provinces can amend the constitution of quebec but when you say that we're putting that clause into the broader constitution then you're no longer talking about right. the the provincial constitution of quebec you're talking about the constitution of canada and things are a little
0: stickier around the issue of language right isn't there some actual mention of that within the
3: canadian constitution as well that's right so the next clause that Quebec says we're, we're adding to the Constitution says that that French is the official language of Quebec and there are again provisions in the Constitution that say that if you are dealing with the status of the language rights of uh, or the use of language in any Particular province, you need the federal government to agree. So that's one. uh, You know that that quite clearly suggests suggests that Quebec cannot make that particular change on its own. And then two, there's another provision in in the constitution which says that um, there are rights to uh, English language speakers in Quebec to use that language in the legislature, in the courts of Quebec. The Section 133 of the Constitution says that uh, all laws have to be published in both English and French, and so obviously, you know, you can't use one part of the Constitution to change another part. So,
0: and regardless... It's still. You may not have to get the whole, you know, seven out of ten provinces, fifty percent, blah blah blah. But it still needs to have Senate approval,
3: and it still needs to go through the House in some form. Does it not? That's my. That's my view. Now, that's not a unanimous view, but okay. um, I'm, you know, uh, if you if you ask me for what my opinion is, I say yeah. That I'm, I'm prepared to stand behind the idea that that. then the confusion lies, and it is a bit confusing, is that there's a. a portion of the Canadian Constitution that that has the label Provincial Constitutions, and then it lists some of the different powers and features of different provinces. Now... Quebec says, okay, well, that's the section that's that's the provincial constitutions, that's the section we can change mm. unilaterally. And I think there that's a misread. I think that, that, again, that's just a section of the Canadian constitution. Quebec can change its own constitution all it likes. That's true. If Quebec wants to say, we form a nation and we've placed that in the constitution of Quebec, then... Go ahead, Alberta could do the same thing tomorrow if they felt like it but what what I do not think provinces can do is wake up and say we 've passed a law that says you know the jets are the greatest hockey team uh, ever to play we 've now put that in the constitution that 's just you know amending the Constitution of Manitoba, and you can read it in the in the Canadian Constitution for the rest of your lives um, because because It doesn't take a genius to figure out that provinces are going to try and game the system and one-up one another um, if they have this unilateral power, and our Constitution just simply can't work that way.
0: Yeah, and and we saw, as you mentioned, Jason Kenney jumping on the train very, very quickly last week. Uh, His quote was, um, he's all good with it because Quebec's identity as a nation is an historical and cultural reality that reflects Quebec's distinctive history and language that goes back 400 years. And he said, and I'm sure if Justin Trudeau has no problem with Quebec doing this, he'll have no problem with Alberta doing this. So he's seeing how he can play it to his political advantage. But we're not talking about apples versus apples here. And like you say, there's a lot of legality around here. So maybe Jason Kenney needs to back off a bit on this.
3: Well, I think he has a couple of things in mind. One is the is the is the vague threat that he's been posing for a long time now that uh, that Alberta is going to either have a referendum on the equalization formula, or maybe now he says, oh, now that you know, now that provinces can unilaterally change. Parts of the Constitution. Maybe we've decided that uh, we can, you know, up our game on on threatening the change to equalization or other provisions in the Canadian Constitution. And and again, it's not the first time that Premier Kenny has said, "I want to basically play by the Quebec uh, rulebook, where you 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 try and tamp down separatism on the home front, while at the same time extracting as as many concessions yeah. as you can from the federal government." The problem is, in terms of game theory, if the more provinces that play that game, the more the Federation falls apart. So it, it's just not a viable option for the way that, that a united country with diverse provinces can operate.
0: Um, so uh, bottom line here, uh, maybe the Prime Minister needs to get a little more legal input on exactly what Quebec can't do, and this is not a done deal, uh, a rubber snap to Quebec at this point.
3: Well, I, I think I think again. That's where the the political story plays a big role here because uh, it wasn't just. Uh Prime Minister Trudeau, all of the major party leaders lined up and said they didn't see any problem with Quebec doing so, and they all have in mind that in the not-too-distant future they're going to be running candidates in the province of Quebec, and of course there are political calculations that motivate those kinds of, of statements. Um, again, it, it's not ultimately going to be the prime minister or, or, or parliament alone that decides whether or not this is constitutional. There, there will be uh, either provinces that step up and, and challenge the constitution, of this, or there will be groups within Quebec or others that challenge. uh, And ultimately, this in the long run becomes an issue I think that that courts will have to weigh in on. Yeah,
0: it'll be a legal battle. Eric, great insight, a little clarification, much needed. Thank you so much for your time.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Anytime.
0: That is Eric Adams, the Vice Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Alberta. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.